we are no longer um, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That was the Sermon on the Mount. We have been spending the last several months looking at the greatest sermon ever preached, but now we are transitioning into an entirely new section in Matthew's gospel. Now, if you were here last week, but even if you weren't, one of the things that Matthew tells us that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus has done this amazing piece of teaching and preaching, it says that the people were amazed. The little word, they were astonished. They were blown out of their socks by the authority, by the clarity, by the power of Jesus's preaching. And what we see here at the beginning of chapter 8 is that as Jesus descends from the mountain and goes about his ministry, these throngs of people, these crowds, these thousands, begin to sort of follow him in mass. This is called by scholars the year of Jesus's popularity. You see, there's this sense of anticipation on the part of the people. What is this guy going to do next? He speaks with authority. He teaches with authority, with power. He, he talks a big game, but what's he going to do to back this up? Sh show us some actions, Jesus. And let's face it, this is, a, this is a relevant cultural moment with this idea because we all know people who are persuasive speakers. Maybe they're powerful orators. They're compelling communicators. They're, they're from the outside, great leaders. They're people who can use their words. But when we get to, to really know them, to get under the surface, we really realize they're really kind of another version of the Wizard of Oz, right? A, a, a wee man behind a curtain who, who talks a big game on the screen, but in reality is kind of a fraud. So, so what Matthew is wanting to show us here, that if the sermon is all about the authority and the, and the power of Jesus as demonstrated by his word, this next section of Matthew is all about the authority and the power of Jesus as demonstrated by what he does. There's what he says, there is what he does. And there's something really important to keep in mind here as we enter this section. And we're going to see all kinds of amazing things, healings, exorcisms, supernatural um, events. There are, there are miracles galore. And let's remember what Matthew's doing here. Matthew is not giving us a backstage pass to a circus or a magic show. Matthew's not recording these just to record them. He's, he's not doing it just so that Jesus can, can exclaim uh, via Russell Crowe style, are you not entertained? Now I can do the British accent with that, but that's after the service, right? That, that's, not what, that's not what Matthew's doing. He's not entertaining us. He's not, he's not wanting us to, to, to dazzle with these spectacles and miracles. What Matthew is wanting us to ask ourselves is Jesus the great statesman, Jesus the great teacher, Jesus the great moral philosopher, all that might be true and have its place, but what distinguishes him from any other leader? Why, in other words, why should we be listening to and following and obeying, and as we're going to see, entrusting ourselves to this man, great that he's an awesome communicator, but but why should we actually 
give our lives to him? That's, that's the compelling question before us. That's the compelling question for, for each of us personally in our own spiritual walks before God. And what we're going to see is that based upon what Jesus does, he leaves not a shadow of a doubt about who he really is. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8 this morning. We're going to read the first 17 verses, and I'm going to invite you to stand as we read these together. There, there are three little vignettes that are all unified by the same theme. Listen to Matthew 8, verse 1. Now, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Let's pray. Father, as 21st century folk, these stories can, be, can seem very distant, very out of touch with our very modern scientific world. Lord, everything around us, the air we breathe, presses in and says we can explain things by science. We can explain things by what we can see and taste and touch and put our hands on. And so, Lord, sometimes stories like this seem very distant we seem very disconnected from them. But Lord, remind us this morning that just as the people of God worshiped you, just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have served the living God, we serve the same God. Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God working supernaturally in your words, same God that we worship. So Lord, open our eyes to this, speak to our hearts, apply your word to our lives, and it's in your name that we pray. 
Amen. You may take your seats. We've entitled this message, A Leper, a Centurion, and a Mother-in-Law. So insert mother-in-law jokes here. That would be the way to do that. I was going to start off by saying, you know, a, le- a leper, a centurion, and a mother-in-law all walk into a bar. But we, no, 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 okay. Now let me just say this. As, as different, and they are indeed different, and as unique as each of these people are on the surface, they all share one thing in common, and this is going to be clear as we work our way through the text, and it's simply this. All of these people are beyond mere mortal help. All, all of them, from a human perspective, need something that no human being can provide. And what I want to do is I want to trace three themes that show up across these stories that I think give us a compelling picture of who Jesus is, what he does, and how you and I are called to respond to him. So here are our three points this morning. So we're not going to look at each story separately. We're going to to kind of examine them all together using these three themes. And here they are. We're going to talk about authority, talk about faith, And finally, we'll discuss the kingdom of God, authority, faith, and the kingdom of God. Let's look first at authority, because I think it's kind of the foundational idea going on in this passage. And it begins with Matthew talking to us about a leper. Now, in the ancient world, because of the obvious reasons in terms of their scientific advancements in medical technology, any disease or illness, of course, was a cause for concern. However, There was one particular medical condition that absolutely terrified, and that, of course, was leprosy. It's a generic term here in the Greek. It it can refer to all manner of skin diseases, uh, but typically reserved for those who were more serious, where where it's not just a scab. This is flesh that's rotting away. This This is something that cannot be healed. It's an ongoing acute chronic condition of which there was no cure. Either the body healed itself or it didn't, which meant that if you were an Israelite, and by the way, the whole book of Leviticus, which I'm still threatening, I mean promising to to teach at some point, is, is all about these sorts of leprous diseases. If you were an Israelite and you came down with a leprous disease, you were to show it to the priest. And the priest was going to set you into quarantine outside the camp for seven days and and would re-examine you after those seven days. And here was the issue. If that leprous disease had not healed itself, then you were permanently ostracized from the community of faith. You were stuck in a leper colony. You were on COVID lockdown. This was social isolation to the max. Think about if you've if you've never seen the movie uh, Ben Hur, um, the classic with Charlton Heston. Um, there there is there is a a part of this movie where Judah Ben Hur's family comes down with leprosy, and he comes back after being gone for a long time and discovers they've been confined to a leper colony, and it is the most tragic, sad thing you can ever imagine. And this is this is the way it worked. These were lepers who lived by themselves, alone, in isolation, out in the desert. And the only way to access them 
was by a cliff that was 100 feet high. And the way that they would get food and supplies to the leper colony is they would let it down by ropes. That's as close as you could get to friends and family. In fact, if you were an Israelite and had leprosy, you were ceremonially unclean. You could not worship. You could not come to the temple. You could not offer sacrifices. Lepers were in every way anathema, Ichabod. They were, they, they were spiritual outcasts, as were people like the centurion. Now, remember, Jews loathed Romans, not just because they were Gentiles, which they were, but these were conquering Gentiles. These were the oppressors. These were the people who held them hostage, the Israelites, in their own land. And it says here that a servant of a centurion had become deathly sick. The word here, paralyzed, and it says suffering terribly, it literally means to be excessively tortured. We don't know if there was an accident, there was a paraplegia, there was a, a stroke, coma. We, we don't know what was happening, but it's very clear this man is beyond any sort of medical hope. And remember, Romans had no medical care to access. This, they were far from their homes. They were far from, from their centers of, 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 of learning and authority and government. These were outposts. These, these Roman soldiers were in these little garrisons in these far-off places, and they couldn't turn to themselves for help, and they most certainly couldn't turn to their captives, the Jews. And so no doubt this was a helpless place for this centurion and his servant. And finally, we have the mother-in-law. Now, this seems a little more normative, at least to us culturally, but that doesn't mean it was any less serious. It says that she was living with Peter and his wife. And by the way, you can still go to Israel on the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. We did this a number of years ago on our Four Oaks Israel trip. And you can see the ruins of this house. It was made for a church for several hundred years after Jesus had ascended back into heaven. But it's where apparently Peter and his wife and his mother-in-law live. What does that tell us? She was undoubtedly a widow. She was undoubtedly a widow who was also an invalid. She couldn't take care of herself. And she came to live with her daughter and her husband because she was unable to care for herself any longer. And by the way, for those of you who have dealt with this kind of situation, and I'm looking out and I know a number of you have, a number of you are dealing with it right now in terms of aging parents. Maybe it's people you've brought into your home. Maybe it's a way that you're trying to care for them. Um, you know that this is a long, slow descent. It is an acute condition. It is a chronic thing. It is a, a debilitating thing for family members to care for those who are in the process of dying. So again, here's the point. Here's the point. There was nothing literally anybody could do for these folks. There was no medicinal remedies. There was no surgery. There was no voodoo, no incantation, no herbs, essential oils, gluten-free diet. You get the whole thing, right? None of that. Yet, Jesus enters the scene, and it's so almost in the background as to escape our attention, but look what it says that Jesus does 
as he heals each of these people. One, it says for the mother-in-law and the leper, he merely touches them with his hand. Just a touch. But what's even more astounding is that Jesus heals this paralytic, how? With a word. He, he wasn't even in the same room. Think about this for a second. Jesus spoke and made it so. He's literally speaking life into existence. And what is Matthew wanting us to, I think, think about there? I mean, obviously creation, right? Where God doesn't need the Lego blocks to build the Lego set. God builds from nothing. God builds from scratch. God speaks things into existence. And in fact, this is what Jesus does. What, what, what is the not-so-subtle message? I mean, Matthew might as well be getting out in the middle of Cary Forest Parkway and waving his hands, okay? And if any of you ever see me crossing on that crosswalk, slow down, please. Don't, 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 don't honk your horn. Um, but, but Matthew is out there waving his hands, and he's, what is he saying? This is no mere man. This is no mere prophet or sage or philosopher or rabbi or teacher, although Jesus is all of those things. This man literally has authority over death. He literally has authority over disease and sickness and old age. He literally stops the aging process. And some of us say, I, that would be awesome, Pastor Paul, like just a year, right? Two years, three years. Jesus speaks, and it is so. And, and Matthew is wanting to say, this is the kind of authority this man displays. Now, this issue of authority comes out, I think, most clearly in the interaction with the centurion. Look back at the text for a second. When the centurion comes to Jesus and asked him to heal his servant, um, it tells us in the text, the centurion explains why he is so bold to make this request. Look, look, look back at verse 8. It says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, why? What gives the centurion confidence that Jesus has the authority to do such a thing? And this is, this is key. Look at verse 9. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. What, what is the centurion saying? This is, this is so important. The centurion, the centurion is saying, listen, Jesus, I get how this works, how authority works. I have authority over my soldiers. They do what I say, they come and they go. I tell my servants what to do. They do what I say, they come and they go. And the reason that they obey me is not just because of me, but it's because of the authority that's over me. You see? And what is the authority over the centurion? Well, it's the entire Roman government in all its full force and effect. And what he's essentially saying is, look, they know if they disobey me, 
they're really disobeying Rome. And when you disobey Rome, typically good things don't happen, right? You're killed, you're tortured, you're enslaved, you're crucified on a, on a cross. And so I have authority over them because they recognize that my authority comes from someone else. As applied to Jesus, what, what, what is he saying? I know you can cure disease, Jesus, with a snap of your finger, just a spoken word. I know you can do that because you have authority over disease. You have authority over life and death itself. And the reason you have authority to do these things is because your authority derives from another authority. See, behind you, Jesus, stands God himself. You speak with authority because your authority comes from him. Now, we're going to see the nature of that authority as we walk through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is at, at pains to tell us this authority is based on the fact that none other, not only does Jesus' authority come from God, he is God. He is the son of God. And he has authority not just over the disease, but over all of life, over all of creation. And this authority to heal demonstrates decisively for Matthew, and it should for us, the kingship of Christ, the lordship of Christ. It's one thing, please hear me, to just talk the talk and say, do this and do that. I say this, but, but the, the scribes say this, so I'm telling you to obey me. I'm telling you to follow me. It's one thing to say that and quite another to back it up. And to say that I am the Lord of all of life. Now, before we leave this point, let me just press in a second and just think about some application for yourself. Where in your life, church, do you need to be reminded that Jesus is exercising his authority right now? In other words, where is somewhere in your life, I don't know if it's, if it's a relationship, if it's your marriage, if it's in... It's in just your physical body. Maybe it's in your relationship with your kids. Maybe it's something going on at work where you're tempted to think, if I didn't know better, I think God doesn't really know what he's up to. Now, you wouldn't say that out loud. That's, that's, that's not Christianly. But you sure act on it. As we sang this morning, I will wait for you. And sometimes, let's be honest, we don't want to wait on God. We don't wait on God because deep down, we don't know if God's got this. We, we, we don't trust what God is doing. God, if I was God, here's what I would do. To which God says, thank you very much. That was helpful. I'll take that into, into account next time. Where is that point in your life right now? Where is that very specific, personal way where God wants to remind you, I'm Lord of that. I'm in control of that. I'm, I'm, I'm sovereign over that. Don't you know that I could just fix that with a word? And sometimes he does. But let's be honest, a lot of times he doesn't. And the point is, but do you trust me? Do you acknowledge me? Do you, do you understand who I am? Again, Matthew's purpose is it's one thing to say this is a great man. 
it's quite another to entrust our life to him in faith. And that brings us to our next point. Now, as we talk about faith, this is a second theme that we see that unites these passages. I want to say something generally about faith that we see in these three accounts. And it's sort of a, I'm going to say it and then I'm going to kind of give you the conclusion and then we're going to go back to the text and kind of show you where I think this comes from, okay? So let me tell you the, the, the main idea, the thrust, the thesis, and then we'll, we'll dig into the text. And here it is. The primary message of these stories, these three stories, is not to show us how to use faith to experience physical healing. That's not the main point. In other words... Physical healing in this life is not the main thing. Faith in this life is. And I, and I say that for a couple of reasons. One, let me just say something very plainly obviously, obvious, I think, from the text. All of these people, while they are healed for a time in that moment, they all go on to get sick again and die. Do you, you understand that, right? In other words, Peter's mother-in-law is not living over at Allegro right now. Okay? Now, that would be amazing, right? But she's not. The, 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 the paralytic goes on to die. The, the leper goes on to get sick in a, in a future time. That's not why these things are being highlighted, right? The, the, the miracles are meant to show the power and the authority of Jesus so that people might be saved not just physically or primarily physically, but in fact, spiritually. And let me show you that from the text, okay? Let's look at the leper first. Interesting that the leper, what does he do? He kneels at the feet of Jesus. He calls him Lord. And he says, if you will make me clean. In other words, Lord, I do want you to heal me, but if it's your will. See, this is a beautiful picture of faith because it doesn't come presuming, it doesn't come demanding, it doesn't come with entitlement, it doesn't say, if you don't heal me, then, then I'm walking away. It just simply is a clear, simple expression of faith. I know you can, God, I believe you can, but whether you do or not, I still trust you. How many of you are in that place right here, right now, where you're having to just apply this basic lesson of faith to yourself? But it's so interesting that Jesus touches him. Now, Jesus did not have to touch him, right? He could have spoken it into being. He could have done a bless me or any way, number of ways he could, have, he could have touched him. Why does he touch the leper? Because what was the one thing you were to never do with a leper, touch him or her, even the priest. You see, you, when you came to show the priest your leprous condition, the priest were, was to look at it, and you can imagine the priest doing one of these numbers, right? I'm going to kind of, I'm going to look here safely from a distance, and when they came back to show you whether they had been healed or not, only touch it if you had been healed, Otherwise, you became unclean yourself. Not only would you might catch the disease, but you would become spiritually unclean. So Jesus touches him. 
But not only is he physically healed, I want to show you where, in essence, he is spiritually healed. Jesus tells him, look, go, back to the, go back to the text. He says, now that you're healed, go show yourself to the priest. Why does he say that? Remember, a leper was cut off from the family of God. The, 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 the leper was not allowed to worship. The leper was not allowed to sacrifice. The, the leper was anathema spiritually. And so when Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest, what he's saying is, I'm restoring you back to the people of God. I'm restoring you back to worship. I'm restoring you back to my presence. I am, I am healing the breach that your leprosy has caused. Now, just a question. Where in your life right now do you feel, for lack of better terms, unclean? Pastor Paul, there's just something I've really been wrestling with. I feel really broken about it. I feel really defeated. It seems that no matter what I do, I can't fix myself. It seems like I'm the dog that continually returns to its vomit. What this little vignette shows us, that what Jesus offers you is not merely physical deliverance or behavioral deliverance. What he offers you most importantly is cleansing, spiritual cleansing, forgiveness, reconciliation, to, to make you who us who were unclean clean by faith. And faith is simply saying, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. Now let's look at the centurion for a second. As a centurion in our second story here, approaches Jesus on behalf of his servant. Jesus replied, now this is an interesting thing. Jesus never does random, right? Jesus never does anything by random. He, he, he tells the centurion, I will come and heal him. Now, wh why does Jesus say that? Why does Jesus say that? Knowing that he was going to speak, why does Jesus offer this? I'm gonna come heal him. Well, What's rule number two? Don't, don't touch a leper, right? And don't ever, ever go play after school with a Gentile, right? Don't go to lunch. Don't hang out. Don't even enter his home or you are going to become ceremonially, religiously unclean. And Jesus knows that a Jew is not supposed to go into the home of a Gentile. And the Gentile, the centurion, knows a Jew is not supposed to come into his home. And Jesus knows that he knows this. This is, this is a little test, is it not? What's, what's in this man's heart? What's, man says, no, no need to come to my house, Jesus. Why? I'm an unclean man. I'm not worthy. You just speak the word. And it says here, what does it say? Look back. Jesus marvels at his faith. Nowhere in Israel have I found such faith. See, salvation is from the Jews. But here is a Gentile, someone who is outside the camp, doesn't know his right or his left spiritually, but who possesses 
rock-solid biblical faith based upon who he knows Jesus is. What's the point? There's a lot of points here, but what's an additional point here? And we've said this a number of times, but it bears repeating. There's always new people. There's always folks coming in and out. Faith is not about your heritage. It's not about your background. It's not about your history. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about your heritage. Sometimes those things can be a blessing, but sometimes, let's be honest, those can be real hindrances, right? Those can be things we take pride in. We can lean on, we can brag about. But Jesus says, a relationship with me is very simple. Come to me. Place your faith in me. And the only requirement is to know you can't save yourself. That you are a broken, sinful person. And that the most important thing about faith, church, is not the quantity of your faith. After all, why would then would Jesus say just a mustard seed, right? The most important thing in your life right now is the object of your faith. And every one of us, whether we think we're religious or not, we have an object for our faith. We have something we trust in. We have something we placed our faith in. There's something we're relying upon. But Jesus says, come to me. Now, the last example of faith we see, it's very easy to overlook because it's just a verse or two. It's easy to skip over is, of course, with Peter's mother-in-law. Now, look back at the text on ver at verse 15 for a second. She's lying sick. Jesus touched her hand, and the fever left her. And, and listen to what it says she does. And it says, and she rose and began to serve him. Now, it would be easy to, to think that, well, the mother-in-law was healed, and after she was healed, she got busy working, right? Somebody had to cook the dinner that night. Somebody had to clean the house. Somebody had to get things in order. You guys know what it's like when mom goes down for the count at home, right? It, 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 I, mean, it's, I mean, some of you are shaking your heads. You know, okay? You, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And that, it's easy to think here, well, well the mother-in-law is just kind of a Martha figure, right? She's busy. She's scurrying about. She's getting things done. She was unproductive while she was sick, but now she's super productive. You know, she's, Peter's mother-in-law is a little OCD, right? She's a busybody. She's got to get with it. That's not the point. Look at it again. The wording is very precise. She rose and began to serve whom? Him. She began to literally offer ministerial service to him. See, when, when, when faith transforms our life, we are introduced into a living, breathing, ongoing, personal relationship with Jesus. And this is what Peter's mother-in-law is exhibiting by her faith. She is sitting at his feet. She's attending to him. Wouldn't you do that to someone who had literally saved your life? But it's a spiritual picture of faith, is it not? That, 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 she, is, that she is attending to him, that she knows him. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus says, on that day, there's going to be many who say to me, I did this, I did this, I did this. And what is he going to say? Depart from me, what? I never knew you. I don't know you. This is, this is a life-giving relationship that Jesus has introduced to all three of these people through a physical, supernatural healing. All right, last point and we're done. Let's talk about the kingdom of God very briefly. If you look in verses 16 and 17, after these three vignettes, Matthew sort of gives us two summary verses about all of this. This is sort of his concluding thought. And here's what he says. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. Now, I made a point a minute ago to say healings aren't the main thing. Physical healings in this life aren't the main thing. And that's true. But they are important in this regard, okay? Look, at, look, look, look back here. Jesus, or Matthew, quotes Isaiah 53. And he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, that is a quote from Isaiah 53. It's a very famous chapter. You hear it oftentimes at Christmas, Advent. We talk about the suffering servant. Um, and it talks about how Jesus is going to come and lay down his life as a sacrifice for sins. And yet here, Matthew quotes it and applies it to this idea that Jesus has been physically healing people. Now, now what, what is Matthew doing here? Matthew is reminding us something. That sometimes... In this life, God does heal. Sometimes he, he, he does do supernatural things. But it's never going to last in this life. However, when God does something supernatural, and he does, we can look at that and say, this, this is a sign. This is a marker. This is a down payment on what God will do one day when he establishes his kingdom here on earth. In other words, the kind of healing that God is going to bring one day to all of his people is not merely spiritual. In fact, it's holistic. He is going to bring healing, and just think about this for a second, not only, not only spiritually, but emotionally, sexually, relationally, and oh yes, physically. You see, we're not going to be disembodied beings flying around with harps and wings on clouds. That sounds very boring, right? We are going to be people living their life in the kingdom of God to its fullest with fully restored human bodies, with fully restored lives and relationships where things are going to be the way they're supposed to be. And so in this life, when God does grant a respite, when God does say, yeah, I'm going to give you 10 more years. I'm going to give you 20 years. We, 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 we praise God, of course, for the years, but we praise God because we know they're a foretaste of the glory divine, as the hymn says. They're a sign. They're a reminder. They're a marker. They're a promise that one day, Things will be on earth as they are in heaven. 
Because there is one warning here in this text, of course. And Jesus never offers the kingdom unless he also offers a warning. Look at verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a reminder, yes, the kingdom of God is open to everyone, faith in Christ. But just by virtue of where you were born or where you were raised or what family you were in, remember, these were all the things the Jews celebrated and boasted in. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, they are totally useless. But for those who would receive him, what does John say? He gave them the right to become children of God. Because when we, when we come to the table, as we do each and every week, one of the things that we're remembering is that this judgment that Jesus says is sure, that, that this is real, that our choices in this life really do matter, he's reminding us of something. He's reminding us that in order for this all to be possible, Jesus took the judgment of God upon himself. Jesus was nailed on that cross. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. He received the curse on our behalf. Luther, you've heard me say this many times, calls it the great exchange. He, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus received our judgment. We received his righteousness. And church, that is good news. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and just take a moment or two to prepare your hearts as we come to the table together. And as you're doing that, I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward, prepare to serve the elements.